you for joining me for the Employment Rights Ireland podcast brought to you by EmploymentRightsIreland.com. I'm your host, Terry Gorey, and this is the podcast for employers and employees who are concerned about their employment rights and obligations. Okay, today's episode is going to deal with unfair dismissal. And unfair dismissal is one of the most common claims that an employer has to face in Ireland, either at the Rights Commissioner uh, Service or the Employment Appeals Tribunal Service. Unfair dismissal in Ireland is governed by the Unfair Dismissals Acts 1977 to 2001. And two fundamental principles need to be made clear about this legislation at the outset. Number one is that an employer must have substantial grounds for dismissing an employee. And number two, in doing so, the employer must apply fair procedures to the process. The unfair dismissals legislation covers people who have been in employment for at least 52 weeks of continuous service and who have not reached the normal retirement age for the employment in question. Employees do not have to show 52 weeks continuous service though if they have been dismissed for trade union membership, a pregnancy-related reason, for exercising their right to maternity leave, uh, for exercising their right to antenatal, postnatal leave, or to employees who are dismissed for exercising their rights to parental leave or carer's leave. Additionally, employees who are not covered by the legislation would include force trainees, members of the Defence Forces, guardie and civil servants, officers of VECs and officers of health boards. Now, it may seem blindingly obvious, but only employees may use or bring an unfair dismissal claim. A self-employed subcontractor, for example, cannot bring such a claim. He would not be covered. He may bring a claim or a case against another party for breach of contract but if he's not an employee he simply does not have the protection of the unfair dismissal legislation. The legislation also deals with agency supplied staff and agency workers and it provides that the place where the agency supplied staff actually worked is the employer for the purposes of the unfair dismissal legislation. This is called a deemed a deemed um, employer situation. <clears throat> the um, continuity of service then, as I say, you need one year's continuous service to bring a claim and continuity of service is not broken by illness holidays, maternity leave, strikes or lockouts. Uh, A layoff does not break continuity of service either. If you're working outside Ireland, the legislation does not apply to a worker who normally works works outside the state unless he was ordinarily resident or domiciled in the state during the term of his contract. Unfair dismissals legislation, then Section 6, divides dismissals into two categories. One is a dismissal deemed to be automatically unfair or two dismissals deemed to be not unfair. 
Once a dismissal has taken place, the burden is on the employer to show that it was not an unfair dismissal. There are a number of categories of dismissal which the Unfair Dismissals Acts have deemed to be automatically unfair. They will be dismissals on the grounds of trade union membership, the colour, race or sexual orientation of the employee, the employee's religious or political opinions, where the employee is involved in legal action against the employer, if the dismissal is because of the employee's age, if the employee is dismissed because he's a member of the travelling community or becomes pregnant or takes part in an industrial action. These dismissals are deemed under the legislation to be automatically unfair. In addition, you can show that you qualify to bring a claim under the unfair dismissals legislation. Um, or if you can show that you can bring a claim and your employer accepts that there was a dismissal, it will be for your, the employer then to show that there were fair grounds for the dismissal because the burden of proof shifts from you to the employer. The legislation also provides, though, that dismissals which are not deemed to be unfair include dismissals arising from the capability, competence or qualifications of the employee, the conduct of the employee and redundancy of the employee. So those types of dismissals are actually not automatically unfair dismissals. Capability, conduct and redundancy. Capability would uh, cover situations like lateness, absenteeism and persistent absence through illness. If lateness or absenteeism is at issue, then the employer will be expected to have documentary evidence to substantiate this claim, such as clocking in records or absenteeism files that are not medically certified. In addition, the employer should have evidence of the severity of the absences being brought to the attention of the employee. If illness is at issue, it's often assumed that you cannot be dismissed while on certified sick leave. However, this isn't entirely true. It is difficult to lay down hard and fast rules to apply to these types of cases as each case is different and each will be treated on its merits. So the illness type cases could be divided into short-term illnesses and long-term uh, illnesses perhaps arising from a specific persistent condition. Another ground on which a person can be uh, dismissed is qualifications. Either the employee misled the employer, for example, about his qualifications during the process of applications or the job was offered contingent on certain qualifications being secured, which have subsequently not been secured. The third situation where uh, dismissal can take place and which is considered in the law to be fair is a situation of redundancy. If the employer can establish that the current levels of staff are unsustainable and that accordingly the dismissal of the employee was justified. The employer has a defence in the form of redundancy but he must be able to show that the employee has been fairly selected for redundancy. The employer, or if the employer seeks to employ the redundancy defence he can expect that if an unfair dismissal claim is made against him he'll have to find, he will find that his redundancy defence will be put under a fair degree of scrutiny. Another ground where the dismissal would be deemed to be not unfair is where 
illegality occurs. This situation, or the most obvious example of this, might be where a valid truck li- or a driving license would be required to continue work in a haulage business as a truck driver. If the person loses their um, license, will then, on the grounds of illegality and by sort of operation of law, the um, the uh, contract of employment cannot continue. However, the courts can accept an argument that reasonable accommodation of an employee should have been considered prior to dismissal. For example, the employee doing perhaps different work. There's another category of grounds called other substantial grounds on which it's not unfair to dismiss and this would involve misconduct, gross misconduct and so on. The whole question of fair procedure rears its head then because the Employment Appeals Tribunal is very strong on fair procedure being afforded to the employee. They've held many times in the past that if they find that the fair procedure was not followed then they'll deem the dismissal to be unfair and it really doesn't make any difference about the particular circumstances. Unless there has been a fundamental breach of the employment contract by gross misconduct or dishonesty on the part of the employee, warnings are essential to show fair procedures were followed. However, it has been held in some cases that the inadequacy of performance was so bad that warnings would be ineffective. There's no set format for a warning, but the following principles must be adhered to. Number one, the warning should be clear and unequivocal. A broad statement or large hint will not be sufficient. The cause of the problem should also be made clear to the employee. For example, example, competence, conduct, etc. What's the problem? The consequences for the employee should also be spelt out if the warning is not heeded. For example, that his job is in jeopardy. And then the employee must be given time and opportunity to improve. Warnings should lapse or be um, wiped from the record after a certain period of time and the EAT has held that warnings cannot remain indefinitely on an employee's record. In relation to performance-related problems, an employer seeking to justify the dismissal of an employee because of poor performance should be able to do the following. Number one, explain how the problem came to light, especially if the employee is in the job for a good period of time. Number two, show that he investigated why performance was not up to scratch. It's not sufficient to merely show that the performance was inadequate. Number three, clearly warn the employee that its performance is falling short. Number four, advise the employee as to the need to improve and the assistance offered to help with this. Then monitor the response to the warning. If there's no improvement, show that they investigated why there was no improvement. Give a final warning then that's clear and unequivocal, setting out what the problem was and the consequences of failing to meet the required standard and when the consequences would be likely to result. And finally, show evidence of the failure to meet the standard of the final warning and provide evidence to the employee, giving him an opportunity to respond and make a case for his retention in the job. If targets are used to measure the employee's performance and work, the employee must be given sufficient time to improve and warned as to the consequences of failing to reach the target. Also, where an employee meets the target but falls back to an old, unacceptable level, the EAT has held on occasion that the procedure should revert to the first stage of the warning procedure. Now, in the employment, in just a word about suspension, 
there are two types of suspension permissible. One is to remove an employee while an investigation is being carried out and two is as a disciplinary sanction. Suspension should be for a limited time only, not indefinite. Generally, the employee must be paid while suspended unless there is a contractual right to suspend without pay. The Supreme Court uh, in a case Connolly v McConnell in 1983 set out the general requirements in relation to disciplinary hearings. The employer is under a duty to fully investigate the circumstances of the alleged offence, carry out this investigation prior to taking any disciplinary action, give the employee an opportunity to defend himself against the charge and ensure parity or equality between the employer and employee at any hearing. Delay in carrying out an investigation may also unfairly prejudice the employee's chances of defending himself and render the dismissal unfair. It is essential that an employee is also told that he has a right to representation at any disciplinary hearing. The standard of proof for dismissal. Well, generally the standard of proof required to justify a dismissal following an investigation is looked at under two headings. Number one, had the employer reasonable grounds for believing that he was right to dismiss? And number two, was the investigation carried out in a fair manner? Proof beyond reasonable doubt is not required, therefore. Proof on the balance of probabilities is generally sufficient. Now, there is a whole area, quite a separate area and quite uh, an extensive area, dealing with sickness and illness-related dismissals. And I'm going to cover that in a separate podcast because it is um, not so much complex but a very, very important area and one which occurs quite frequently in the workplace and employers are generally faced with a difficult situation where somebody may be out sick for quite some period of time and they really want to bring the thing to a head and finalise it. You do need, if you're an employer, to be careful about this type of situation. So sickness and illness related uh, absences or sorry not absences dismissals I will deal with <coughs> excuse me in a separate podcast an employee then just in relation to conflict of interest and competition employee owes a duty of loyalty to his employer therefore an employer can dismiss fairly where that duty is breached by a conflict of interest or the employee is for example competing against the employer Similarly, an employer will be entitled to dismiss where the employee behaves in a way that is inconsistent with the employer's business or brings it into disrepute. This would include, for example, a criminal conviction for an offence in connection with the employment, for example, where the reputation of the business is affected. Where there is the possibility of conflict of interest or where it cannot be resolved, the employer may be justified in terminating the contract. Employee then also engaging in behaviour which is inconsistent with the business of the employer may also justify dismissal. Now, performance-related problems and lack of competence. To dismiss under this heading, there's really a two-fold test. Number one, has the employer an honest belief as to the employee's incompetence? And number two, has the employer reasonable grounds for holding such a belief? The employer, as I've said already, is required to set out the employee's shortcomings, point out the required improvements and give sufficient time to make the improvements and warn him of the possibility of dismissal. This, quite frankly, can be a slow process and will require monitoring of the employee's performance. But it must be followed 
to ensure procedural fairness and natural justice and avoid a successful claim for unfair dismissal by the employee. However, if an employee is not heeding warnings and does not accept that there is justification for them, the employer may be entitled to dismiss sooner. Competence is also taken to refer to the standards which are expected of an individual employee as regards his job. The employer should take the earliest opportunity to outline these expectations to the employee so that each party is fully aware of their responsibilities. In circumstances where the employee falls short of the standards expected, it's understood that this should be communicated to the employee through formal procedures in addition to a specification as to the improvements necessary. Conduct then is taken to cover a very large area of behaviour might be accurately described or termed misconduct. In this regard, there is a very clear need to differentiate between gross misconduct and ordinary instances of misconduct. Gross misconduct may give rise to summary dismissal without notice or pay in lieu of notice. Alternatively, a series of instances of misconduct may collectively lead to dismissal. In the case of instances of minor misconduct warnings as to future behaviour, or conduct or warnings rather, uh, as to future behaviour must be issued. And again, unless summary dismissal can be justified for gross misconduct, proper procedures and processes and natural justice must be gone through. Even where fair procedures are followed and the employee deserves a severe penalty, the tribunals have asked on many occasions whether the employer has assessed a range of penalties for the offence and not just dismissal. It is well established that a tribunal cannot take into account facts which the employer was unaware of when dismissing the employee. However, the EAT will take matters which later came to light to justify the decision of dismissal in deciding on the award or remedy for the employee. So an employee could win his case, and it has happened, and be awarded nothing. The House of Lords in the UK, incidentally, has found that there's no inconsistency between a finding of unfair dismissal with no award of compensation. And you may recall the Albert Reynolds libel case some many years ago, where he won a libel case, I think, against the Sunday Times or Rupert Murdoch or somebody, but he was awarded, like, you know, a pound or a penny or something in compensation, or as damages. The EAT then distinguishes between settlements which follow negotiations, normally with professional advice for the employee, and settlements imposed by the employer without legal advice or negotiations. The former are valid while the latter fall foul uh, of Section 13 of the Unfair Dismissals Act 1977 and will almost certainly be found to be void. So if you're an employer and you're settling a case with an employee, you'd be very well advised to ensure that they sign some sort of a form saying that and confirming that they've obtained independent legal advice and you'd be really covering yourself far better if you actually got a letter from a solicitor confirming that they've advised the employee in question. Remedies then are redress for unfair dismissal. Possible remedies for redress uh, or for unfair or constructive dismissal which the EAT can order include reinstatement in the job This is to the position which the employee held prior to dismissal on the same terms and conditions. 
re-engagement. This does not guarantee continuity and payment of lost salary and benefits and may be to the same position or to a different one to that held before dismissal. Or the EAT or Rights Commissioner can award compensation. Compensation of up to 104 weeks remuneration can be awarded for unfair dismissal. That's two years salary. The average award in 2012 I think was um, around about 16,000 I think it worked out at 9 months salary while the EAT can award up to 104 weeks the employee has a duty to mitigate his loss by seeking alternative employment the actual loss of the employee will be closely looked at by the EAT before it makes any compensatory award for example in a case involving Coyle versus Tipperhouse Trust Limited a 1993 case, the employee won his case for unfair dismissal but was not awarded anything because the tribunal held he had suffered no financial loss because he was unfit for work at the time of the dismissal and thereafter. The employee's loss is restricted to financial loss so there's no award for injury to feelings or um, hurt caused or anything of that nature. As I say, it's up to 104 weeks, that's two years' salary. Um, if the employee has a nil financial loss, for example, he immediately gets employment or is unfit to work due to weakness, or due to sickness, the maximum he can be awarded is four weeks remuneration. Um, and social welfare benefits should not be regarded in calculating financial loss. The EAT can also reduce an award for any contributory conduct by the employee. Remuneration then, uh, when you're calculating to two years remuneration uh, includes salary bonuses and benefits finally we're going to just take a look at wrongful dismissal wrongful dismissal unlike fair dismissal is a common law relief for a dismissed employee and does not require any particular period of service in the job remember to bring a claim for unfair dismissal you do need 12 months continuous service a wrongful dismissal case will essentially be based on probably a breach of contract by the employer or a breach of an employee's constitutional rights. This type of case, wrongful dismissal, does not go to the EAT or Rights Commissioner. It goes goes to the civil court. As I say, it's based on a breach of employment contract. Given that the employment contract can be terminated for any reason, provided the proper notice is given, winning a wrongful dismissal case will require a fundamental breach of contract, and you need, as an employee, certainly, to prove that. The employee must also prove the financial loss as a result of the breach and cannot bring a case both to court for wrongful dismissal and for unfair dismissal to the Employment Appeals Tribunal. He must choose one or the other. My name is Terry Gorry. I'm a solicitor in Enfield and County Meath. My website is employmentrightsireland.com. I hope you find the podcast useful. If you do, you might let your friends or somebody know who uh, would also find it useful and um, if you have a question for future episodes send it in to terry at employmentrightsherald.com and I might be able to cover it thanks